You're listening to our weekly podcast, Getting in the Word with Stuart Guthrie. Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship of Ridgeville in Early Branch, South Carolina. We hope to grow together with you, seeking real knowledge from the truth, the Word of God. Here's Stuart. Well, again, today we're going to continue our study. I've entitled the message today, A Prayer of Unity. We're looking at John chapter 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. What many have called the prayer of all prayers is the longest prayer for which Jesus has prayed. We noticed uh, as we began this that this prayer was really divided into three portions. Verses 1 to 5 dealt with Jesus praying for Himself. Um, verses 6 to 19, really praying on behalf of the current disciples at the time in which we see this unfold. And then in verses 20 to 26, for which we will look at today, is a prayer on behalf of all converts that would ever come to know Christ as Savior. And it is a prayer for which Christ wants to bring about unity. Now Jesus, if you are reminded, is about to depart from the disciples. He's hours away from the crucifixion. Now I know there's several chapters still left before we get there, but in reality, He's only a few hours away. So what may take me a few weeks, He's going to endure in a few hours in the context. He is headed to a cross in which He will suffer for the sins of mankind, for all of the world. The disciples and the future Christians, which includes you and I, wants us to be aware that we will encounter difficult days, that we will encounter persecution, that we will encounter rejection from the world whom hates Jesus Christ and His Word. So Jesus is really comforting His disciples. He is encouraging their faith. And as He is, He is giving us as well an encouragement. It's a great example of what we can physically see as His intercessory prayer for which we know after His ascension, He ascends to the right hand of the Father where the Scriptures tell us He now intercedes on our behalf. And so what we see is this prayer of Christ to the Father in which He is praying for you and for me as believers. And what a great example He has given us. It should perk our ears into trying to understand the details of what He is praying about. And essentially He is praying for you and for me and for all future believers. All the... Prayer really relates to us in some shape, fashion, or form. But more specifically so, this section of the high priestly prayer really resonates with us as the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about the facility. I'm talking about the people within the facility. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You are a part of the universal body of Christ. And so without delay, let's jump into our text this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 20 to 26. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire 
that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love which, which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Now, a lot of text here. In many different ways, I believe that I could go as we address this sermon But three things I want us to notice from the text that I think will help us work through this life and understand what Christ is praying for here as He intercedes on our behalf before the Father. First, I want you to notice the prayer for believers. Secondly, the prayer from reconciliation. And thirdly, prayer for knowledge. Let's consider first the prayer for believers. Notice verse 20. As Jesus continues His prayer, as He points out the specifics of whom He is praying for. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. Looking back at verses 6 to 19, last week's sermon, we are mindful that this section for which Christ has been praying for the current disciples is in mind. He has been very specific of God's sovereign choice in the selection of those whom God has given to Christ. He has over and over talked about this reality in which God had by His own sovereign choice, given those whom He has chosen to Christ to protect. None of, if I should remind you, did He lose but the son of perdition, which was Judas Iscariot, from whom Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. We are told that ultimately this was done for what purpose? So that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. This was a fulfillment of prophecy. Christ has been very adamant in making it clear that He is praying not on behalf of the world. That would be those that are in the world, that are of the world, that have not believed, that have not placed their faith in Christ, but rather have rejected Christ. These are the unsaved people. And so he is rather praying specifically for those whom God has given to him, the believers. And specifically, this is not a prayer for the unbelieving world. This is a prayer that is focused on the person and work of Christ. The persons which God has given to Christ, namely the disciples, and prayer for those that would come to know Christ, whether it be today or ten years down the road, or how it has happened. It's a prayer for those that would respond to the grace and mercy of God. That would believe the gospel. You say, well, what is the gospel? Well, I hope if you've been a part of this church long enough, you understand the gospel. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God, who was in heaven, gave His Son. His Son burst through the floor systems of heaven, became a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross because you could not pay for your own sin. He sent His Son to die for you to pay for your sin. He was buried in the grave and three days later rose again from the grave and in short few days later he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf and he promises that he is coming back to take home his church. These are the ones for which he is praying for. It would be because of the responding of the gospel through the wooing of the Spirit, through the preaching of his word. And so Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these disciples alone, contextually he's saying, but also those who believe in me 
through their word. Notice the specifics of how it is the people would believe. Notice it is not because of their works, but because of their words. Romans 10.17 says it this way, So faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God. Now, if you spend a few hours a week listening to sermons, you will hear pulpits full of stories and tales and illustrations, and very rarely will they ever crack the Word of God. You may be in a 30-minute sermon and 15 to 20 minutes of it are sheer stories. If we truly understand that this is the word of truth, this is sufficient for all things and for godliness, we need to be faithful in simply preaching the text. You say, Pastor, that's not creative enough. Well... I might not be creative enough. But if salvation comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God, and God has called us here on this earth and breathed life eternal into us, how much more should we be willing to just simply teach the truth of God's Word? Whether it seems relative or creative or not. If we want to see true change in our children, in our marriages, in our families, across the globe, in our nation, in our county, in our country, then know this, it's going to be because the Word of God has changed the hearts of people. Salvation comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. It's by the Word which people come to faith and believe in the Savior. It's the Word of God alongside the wooing of the Spirit of God by which people believed and were saved. And if that's the case, then every single one of us, no matter how old you are or how young you are, you need to listen to this very clearly. Your works don't save you. Your deeds don't save you. It is a work of God through the Word of God by which you trust the Gospel and believe and are saved and are transformed. So this prayer should resonate with you and I who have placed our faith in Christ, who believe the Gospel, who are born again from above, who claim the name of Christianity. Because I can tell you we need to define terms in 2020. There's a lot of confusion out there today. But this should perk our ears. It should resonate with us for those who have placed their faith. It should encourage us not only to hear what's saying, but understand what He's saying here. It should also encourage us to be more like the disciples, shouldn't it? To be faithful men and women who are actually speaking the words of Christ who are going into their highways and byways and being faithful to encourage the world, our family, our children, our employers, in our workplaces, the truth of God's Word. It's the Lord's desire that as Christians, we be ambassadors for Christ. And a real ambassador doesn't go out and try to accomplish what he thinks is important. He is to represent the king and to speak that which the king desires to be spoken. And here we learn that these disciples, by their words that people would believe, and let me remind you, it is still today by the word which people will believe. Salvation has always come by hearing and hearing the word of God. People don't get saved because they wear a cross around their neck. People don't get saved because you live a good life or because you do great deeds. People don't get saved because you live a good life. People don't get saved because you show up on Sunday. People don't get saved because you're a great employer. People don't get saved because your, your life is, 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 is 
faithful to a man-made standard. People get saved because they've heard the Word of God and the proclamation of the truth, which is the Gospel. And therefore, if we're going to be true believers, then we need to be like these disciples who are willing to open their mouth and share the truth of God's Word. you, You would think that we don't even need to say this. As believers, think that it would just come natural. But I, I just want you to think about the, the last month of your life. Personally, I, I can't speak for you and you can't speak for me, but we can, we can think about our own lives and, and we can say, we, you know, we can say, I love you, and then I can not act like I love you. And what's better for me to say I love you or to actually show you that I love you? We can say we're a Christian and, and we, we can, Claim to be a Christian, but do we live like a Christian? We can say we, we love the Word of God, but do we promote the Word of God? So, so let's evaluate our own lives and, and ask ourselves the question, if a faithful Christian is one who is faithfully proclaiming the truth of God's Word, have we been living faithfully? And I understand as I look across, there are different seasons of life. For you and for me. Some are mothers, some are fathers, some are grandparents. And you may not be out in the public very often. You may be right in your own household. But let me ask you a question. Do you at least invest into your children with the Word of God? And if you're not in the home and you're in the workplace, do you encourage those in your arena with the Word of God? Because it doesn't matter how spiritual you are or how much you know. It's about how faithful you are to sharing the hope of God's Word. From the smallest to the oldest. Uh, My wife had a ladies' party out on the beach with the kids this week. And she came home and one of the mothers that was there told her, or she heard, I I can't remember how it worked, but that this small young girl went out and asked this other child if they knew Jesus. Now if a child who don't know the doctrine of justification who doesn't know the doctrine of regeneration, who probably can't articulate the gospel in its fullest extent, if they don't know transubstantiation, if if they don't know what it means to be in union with Christ, if they don't know all of the theological terminologies, and they can go ask their little Friends, if they know Jesus, why can't we as adults? You know, I think we can learn a lot from children. Because children ain't scared. You know why? Because they really believe that Jesus is who He claims to be. They have faith without seeing And that's why the Scripture says, unless you have faith like a child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. My friends, it's time. This world is going to... in a bad direction. And we just ain't saying nothing about it. Now, we're talking about everything else. We're talking about the economy. We're talking about the gas prices. We're talking about the political arena. The election was stolen. We're talking about Republican and Democratic parties. We're talking about the upcoming elections. But we ain't talking about Jesus. And if we can grasp and believe that the Word is sufficient, that it is enough, then we should be faithful in just telling people about Christ.
You don't have to know all of the details. You don't have to know all the intricate insides and outs. I mean, remember the demon-possessed man who was healed and he followed Jesus and they kicked Jesus out of the community and he went in to get in the boat. He says, well, where are you going? He goes, I'm going with you. He says, no, no, no. You go back and you tell them of what great things God has done for you. He didn't say go back and tell them doctrine. He didn't say go back to them and tell them theology. He didn't say go to seminary and train. No, he said, go tell them your testimony." You see, they might argue with everything, but they can't argue with your testimony. It was because of these disciples' words, their testimony, that these people believed. And if we're going to be true believers, we need to be like these disciples who were willing to speak the truth of God's Word in every crack, in every crevice of the world and share the hope of Jesus to share His Word, to share the good news of Jesus. And my friend, if you can't do that, you're either unbelieving or you're misunderstanding. Unless you're willing to go into the uttermost parts of the world, which includes those unwanted places, that you're missing an opportunity. And listen, they, we all miss opportunities. Let's just be honest. I, don't, I just don't like have a perfect track record of getting every opportunity right. I mean, there's times I get home and I go, how did I miss that opportunity? Shame on me. But God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. And sometimes when you miss that opportunity, God will bring someone else to answer that opportunity. And so we need to trust that even though we may have missed plenty of opportunities, today can be the first day of the rest of our lives for which you and I can be a mouthpiece for Christ. Now don't misunderstand me here. I don't think all of these things are bad. I think living a... A, a, a good life is a fruit of conversion. You ought to be living an honorable life. You, you ought to be a good employer. You ought to be a faithful mother and father. You ought to show up on Sunday mornings and even, I would suggest, Sunday school and if possible, even Wednesday nights. You ought to give to the poor. You ought to do all of those things we've been called to do as Christians. Why? Because you are born again. But those things don't save you. They are simply a byproduct of what God has done. They are evidence of true conversion. Jesus in His prayer is very precise to who He's praying for. And he's praying for those who have believed because of their word, which are his words. Some believe because they've seen Christ. I mean, you think about the context. Jesus is with them in John 17. He walked with them. They believed, many of them, because they've seen with their eyes. Because they heard His Word. They walked with Him. They saw miracles. They saw signs. They saw wonders. And all of those things that He did bore great witness to Christ. But Christ is about to depart. And while, yes, He would take up residence in those believers as Christians, His physical appearance would no longer be present after His ascension. And so many who were saved were saved because they saw and they believed. But here we are told that Christ is praying for those who believe through their word, through their testimony, which we have today in written form, which is the word of God. Later, Jesus will say in John 20, 29, Jesus said to them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. 
So Christ is praying for those who will put their faith in Christ after His departure, who have trusted in the testimony for which they have heard the truth and they believe without ever seeing physically Christ. And so He's praying specifically for the believer. But what is it that He is praying exclusively for? Well, he says in verse 21 that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. This prayer for which Christ is lifting up to the Father is on behalf of believers. For what purpose? So that they may be one. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about union. He's talking about unity. He's talking about oneness. He's talking about connectivity like we see in John chapter 15 when it says, I am the vine and you are the branch. He who lives in me will bear much fruit. He's talking about being connected in oneness to the life-giving source of Jesus Christ. He's talking about a Romans chapter 12 kind of Christianity. Which says we are, what, one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Yes, I have five fingers, but those fingers are connected to the hand. And the hand is connected to the arm. And the arm is connected by the elbow. And the elbow is connected by whatever this part is to the shoulder, to the body, to the feet. All the way down to the toes, which is all led by the head. It's oneness. When I do this, it does this. Because it's connected. There's a oneness. He's trying to draw this illustration for you and for me to understand. He is praying that Christians will be unified. And the only way that you and I as believers, listen, will ever be unified is that if we have a common fellowship in Christ. That's why there's no partnership with unbelievers. What, 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 what partnership has light and darkness? It doesn't. It's a rhetorical question. As believers, we will be unified if we first have common fellowship in Christ, meaning that Christ lives in you. We're talking about Christ in us. We're talking about union with Christ. We're talking about being sealed in by the Holy Spirit. Listen, we are initially united with Christ at what? In regeneration. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. We are correct and continue to live out this union by faith. Galatians 2, 20. Listen, we are justified in union with Christ. John 15, 4, and 5. We're sanctified. Through union with Christ. We, we, we are even to persevere in union with Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. We are even said to die in union with Christ. And not only are we to die in union with Christ, we're to be raised to the newness of life in union with Christ. And then ultimately you and I will be like so many that have gone before that are glorified in union with Christ. We ought to be jealous they made it before we did. Because they are with their Lord and their Savior. This whole prayer is about union. It's about being connected to the triune God through the Son. So that Christians, what may be one? So let me ask you the question, how are we living in oneness? How are you living in oneness with one another? We are all one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now each part has a, is not the same part and they have what? Different functions. So it is with Christ's body. How are we living in oneness with one another, with Christ, as the church? There ought to be an absolute beautiful unity among believers. 
Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4, 1-6, I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, diligent, uh, being diligent to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It is prayer to these who would believe is for the purpose of being one. One. That means when you're hurting, it should hurt everybody. That means when you're suffering, it should affect everybody. That means when you need something, the body should come along and help. Now, I'm not talking about them who just always need, 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 and never serve, never give, never participate, never do anything. Just always give, give, give. We have to be reminded, Christ says, I didn't come to to be served, but to serve. Give my life a ransom for many. So why is it that we should be one? Well, he says, the latter part of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. All of this is for a purpose. So that those out there might look in here and see the reflection of the glory of God. So how you treat one another, how you love one another, how you honor one another, how you talk about one another, reflects to the world who we are in one body. Your oneness with me and my oneness with you And our oneness with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Listen, it is purposeful. It, my friends, is is an observable union. Measurable by what is seen. This isn't, I'm just going to be good, but I ain't going to say anything and nobody's ever going to know. No, this is observable. So that they might believe so that the world might believe that God sent His Son. Our union with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, shows itself in our unity as a body of Christ. This is the beauty of what I love about Family Bible Fellowship because the testimony that continually comes across my desk and across my email is that when I visited, I felt like I was at home. Like those were my family. Like now I, I, I got a tribe that I'm a part of. Now I know you going to your own address after here, and I'm going to my own address after here, but those who are part of this body know good and well that they are a part of something special because of the love we have for one another. And the devil don't like it. So he's going to send his little minions to try to distort and to confuse and to break up that which God has done. But let me tell you, don't ever lose the the blessing of, of understanding that oneness as a body of believers. John 13 says that unity, that union marks itself in our love for one another. They will know that you are truly my disciples by the love you have for one another. Therefore, I give you a new command that you love one another. That you, what? Wash their feet. Ultimately, that you serve one another. The love you have for the triune God will show itself in the love you have for each other. That's the truth. So if you ain't very loving and you're very self-serving and you're very self-centered and you don't think about the needs of others and you're always worried about A and never B, C, D and all the way to Z, then you, 
you need to stop for a moment, ask God to forgive you, and become a team player. Because this is not about membership, which brings about the idea of entitlement. This is about partnership, which will cost you something. We're glad to have partners in Christ at Family Bible Fellowship. And the way we love one another will be a reflection of the love we have for our Heavenly Father. If I remind you the Scriptures, it says if someone says, I love God and and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that 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 the one whom loves God should love his brother also. Now, you could say sister there as well. It, it gives the idea that we are loving one another well. Listen, when you... I, I was trying to think like... like what the oneness, and, and, and all I can think about is a sponge. And when you take that sponge and you go across that water, it just soaks it up and it becomes part of the sponge. And, and, and so when, when we are soaked up in, in the sponge of the triune God, we are one. And we're one for the purpose so that the world would believe. So the way you live your life matters. But not only in deed, but in word. That life, in line with that word, will be the avenue by which God draws men to Himself. So you can have the word, and it just be the word, and no deed, and the world will go, well, ain't he a hypocrite? (laughs) I don't go to church. You ever seen them Christians? They go to church on Sunday. They put their suit and their towel and they look good. But then they go out six days a week and they at the club and getting drunk, getting crunked out with their friends, doing drugs and acting all crazy, living like hoodlums. I don't want nothing to do with that. I'm just going to go do what I do and, and, and not be a hypocrite. So we need to be Christians not only in word, but in deed. The desire for which Christ prays to the fathers for unity, for union, and he continues to be specific for about this, his glory which God had given him from, from which we have seen this unfold. And so he says here in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I give them that they may be one just as we are one. The word here, glory, commonly refers to a manifestation or the person of God. His character, His person. Therefore, the, the glory of, of God or the, the glory, the character of God, which God has given to Christ, Christ has also given to those who believe. And because of their union with Christ, God the Father... The believer has now received the manifestation of the very character of God. And thus, when we live out our lives, we ought to exemplify those Christ-like characters. That's hard in a world that hates you. That is hard when you are judged by the way you manage your home. That's hard when you are in a workplace and they ask you to do something that goes against your standards. But let me remind you, it is the glory, the Christ-like characteristic that God has given to Christ, that He has also given to you and to me. We have no excuse. And so when we fail, we ask God to forgive us. Because you know and I know good and well when we exemplify Christ-like characteristic. And when we don't. When that car cuts you off, is it a Christ-like character? When, when, when someone speaks to you poorly, and the first thing you want to go is, who are you talking to? You ain't my mama. You ain't my daddy. My daddy ain't even talking to me that way. 
Do, do we exemplify a Christ-like character? Because it says, listen, the glory which you have given me, I give to them. That they may be one, that, that it may be in you and, and, and permeate through you. Because if I take a sponge that's soaked up all it and I squeeze it, guess what's coming out? That which is in it. And when the world squeezes you, what comes out? It ought to be godly character. Why? Because you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's that idea of being born again. Before you're born, you have a standard of unrighteousness. You are, let's just say it, a slave to sin. But when you are born again and you are regenerated and you are, you are moved from death to life and from the power of Satan to the power of God, you're no longer a slave to sin, but rather righteousness. And therefore, when you squeeze, when you are squeezed, righteousness ought to come out. And when you're squeezed and righteousness does not come out, it should reveal to you there's still work to be done. And I promise you, I ain't never in my life been squeezed like I've been squeezed in the last six months of my life. But let me tell you what. I've seen every bit of my pride, my arrogance, my sin. I've seen every drop of it that has come out of me. And it shows me I ain't yet arrived. And I have to get on my knees and I have to ask God to forgive me for maybe not responding publicly that way. Just maybe privately. You know, when you're driving down the road and you have that conversation with somebody that you ain't actually having, but you're going to have that conversation because you're going to tell them about themselves. And you laugh because you know it's true. That's what makes jokes so funny because they're true. See, what's in you will come out. And I think if I've learned anything is sometimes I just need to shut up my mind and my mouth. Because... I ain't quite sanctified yet. And the beautiful thing is, is ain't none of us quite sanctified yet. We will be when we are glorified. You will be totally sanctified. But until then, it will be a process. You should exemplify Christ-like character. Galatians kind of 2.20 It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. Kind of. Union with Christ. Listen, I, I can't say I'm of Christ and, and have no Christ-like characteristics. I can't say I'm a born-again believer and not exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit indwells every believer, and therefore if you are a believer, you have the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit will come out of you like a tree produces its fruit, so you will produce that which is good or that which is bad. It's not what, what comes in that defiles, it's what comes out, right? We need to, as believers, manifest the characters of God. The characteristics of God. And so Jesus has facilitated the glory of God. Personally to those followers who believed and then through them who had believed and shared the truth would believe on account of their message. All of this has been done so that they may be one. That they may be one. I, I'm going to go off on a limb here and flip over to 1 John. I hope it's 1 John because I kind of got it. But I don't got it. What we, 1 John chapter 1, ver, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, what was from the beginning, that which we heard, that which we've seen, which we've looked at with, in touch with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. 
what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. That we might be one. That we might be koinonia. The Greek word there for fellowship is koinonia. means having something in common, which is a personal relationship with Christ. All of this is done so that you and I might be one in Christ. That we might have true, genuine fellowship. It's what we see here in John 17, 23 when it says, I in them and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This perfected unity that is expected among believers, again, is to bring about a knowledge of God and His love so that they may know that the Father has sent the Son to die for them. And so that you might be certain of your salvation. Because if the devil can convince you that you are something you are not and you don't have to think about that anymore, then he has won the race. We need to make sure that we understand that there is no greater love than God loving the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you had loved me. He died that you might be one with Him. That you might be saved. That you might be indwelt. That you might exemplify Christ-like characteristic. That you might open your beautiful mouth and proclaim the beautiful news of Christ to an ugly world who needs to be saved as believers. So we've seen the prayer for believers, but I want you to notice, secondly, the prayer for reconciliation. Not only does Christ pray on behalf of believers that they would be in unity as the body of Christ, but He desires for a future reunion. A, 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 a reconciliation, so to speak. I don't know about you, but I want to be reconciled with Christ the Lord. I want a future reunion where where we're together with the Lord. I love being with you, but I really want to be with Him. Remember, Jesus is going away. And where He is going, they cannot come. And uh, at least not at this point. And while, yes, there is a great promise of the Holy Spirit, for which He promises the paraclete, the, the advocate, that He would come and take up residence and grant them peace and protection and all the benefits that come with that that He will indwell them and be with them. There is a great desire of future reconciliation that the Son desires for those that have placed their faith in Christ. It is my desire for which He has made a promise already in John chapter 14 that He says He's going to prepare a place. And He says, if I go and prepare a place... I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I'm there you may be also. It's this kind of desire that Christ has to be with believers. To bring about His prayer here to the Father. And what we see in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Now this is a, a little premature, isn't it? Because He's still with them right now. But there is a confidence that the cross is on the horizon, that there will be a crucifixion, that there will be a burial, that there will be a resurrection, and that there will be an ascension where He will be seated at the right hand of the Father, where He has rewind our thinking back to John chapter 14, where He said, I am going to prepare a place. And if I go, I will come again. And when He comes, it will be absolutely stunning. It will be absolutely wonderful. And it will absolutely be beautiful 
And so he wants this reunion to take place. Here we find that Christ, his desire isn't any different than that of the Father's. It was the purpose of the Father that he might send a son to die and for us that we might be saved, that ultimately the end result would be glorification, which we would be reunited with him. Christ desires that all of his children likewise see that glory and experience that manifestation of who Christ is in his fullness and to be a part of that glory. But know this, it can only take place. It can only take place if there is a unity that is perfected in you, which only comes from a belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what you've been told or what you hope for, but I'm here to tell you today that no matter what is being said to you or you are trying to buy into, I want you to hear me clear this morning. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. You are either for Him or you're against Him. You're either saved or you're lost. There isn't oh yeah, lukewarm Christianity of our modern day culture where you can be a carnal Christian. I don't know who came up with that terminology. That's just a soft way of saying you're disobedient. You're living in sin. Christ desires for us to be glorified with Him in heaven. So there is this eschatological hope for believers to be reunited with Christ in heaven. We are reminded of what it said in John 1.1 already that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father. What? Full of grace and full of truth. Christ desires that we be together. Why? Because we are in union. Meaning He is in them and they are in Him. That physical reunion will be an amazing thing. That means the disciples had seen Him. They had walked with Him. They had shook His hand. They had touched Him. They had talked with Him. They would seen so many great miracles. But I've never seen Him. I've never spoken with Him. I've never touched Him. But one day, for those who place their faith in Christ, we will behold His glory. We will see Him face to face. We will embrace Him in love, there is a great hope, my friend. This glory has existed before the foundations of the world. And that, my friends, is hope. That is my rest. That is what brings me joy. Is to know that no matter what we face in this messed up world, no matter the circumstances, no matter the pain we endure, no matter the suffering that we engage in, I want you to know there is a heaven and there is a God who resides there. And one day we will behold His glory because He has made you and I a promise. If you will believe. I appreciate the prayer of the Savior here that we be together. And for all who have gone on before, listen to me, none of them are disappointed. The biggest question you have to ask yourself is are you ready to see Him face to face? Because I'm here to tell you that day will be absolutely wonderful. Oh, I can... I, I like the song, I can only imagine what that day will be like. It will be a glorious day. But know this, it will also be the most terrifying day.
It just depends on which side of the line you're on. Have you trusted Christ or have you rejected Christ? It ain't going to be, well, did I do good works? Did I make it because, of, you know, Lord, I love you. No, it's going to be, are you a child of God or are you a child of Satan? Have you believed or have you rejected? It's that simple. And that much is on the line. We don't have the time to play Christianity games. We, we worship a real God in a real heaven who we are indwelt with a real spirit who has power and authority. And if we want to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ and behold His glory, my friends, it will take your submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will take you going, I can do nothing in my own in order to make it to heaven. But Lord, it is an absolute 100% dependence upon the cross of Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, that I believe in that truth. That is enough to save me. And boy, when you believe, you will be set free for eternity. He wants to be reconciled together for eternity. There will be no greater joy. He will reconcile us to Himself. He will reconcile our sufferings, our sadness, our tears, our pain. You know the body aches you have? He will reconcile them with joy. And they will be reconciled for eternity. So we've seen the prayer for believers. We've seen the prayer for reconciliation. And the final thought is that we see the prayer for knowledge. He begins by expressing the lack of knowledge in regards to the world. Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you that you sent me. He, he gives again a, 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 a contrast of wickedness and righteousness. And it's contrasted by those who know God and those who do not know God. Those who have a knowledge of God, the, the character and the, the, the personality of God and His attributes and those who have no knowledge of God. As a matter of fact, they hate God. As a matter of fact, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and what they know to be true about God they have thrown to the side so that they might accomplish all that their wicked hearts desire. He begins by acknowledging the fact that God the Father is number one righteous. It's a character of God. It can't be changed. God, God doesn't do evil. If you think God does evil so that you might be enlightened, you, you've missed it. God doesn't do evil. He is not a wicked God. He, all He does is done in righteousness. He is righteous. He will always be righteous, no matter what happens in this wicked world. And thus, He can't be blamed for unrighteousness. He can't be blamed when someone walks into a church and shoots someone. He can't be blamed when, when, a, when a shooter goes into a school and, and just takes out all of these kids. No, they remove God from these places. And now they want to know why is it happening? Well, because we live in a nation that doesn't want God. Are you sure you want a nation without God? Listen, I'm, I'm grateful to God that He does not leave my side one second. We live in a wicked world, but I'm here to tell you we worship a righteous God, a good God, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain. God is a good God. Why? Because He is good and His characters are righteous and they are always righteous. The wicked, rather, they have no knowledge of God. So if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, 
and we've been justified, then we also have this righteousness of Christ in us because we are one with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. And if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have the unity of righteousness, then those who are children of God are deemed righteous in the eyes of God. It's the doctrine of justification. You've been declared right positionally before God at conversion. And there will be this progressive, ongoing process of sanctification, which He's growing you in your righteousness. And then ultimately, there will be this eternal glorification that will take place. But the wicked, though, they have no knowledge of God. They have no knowledge of the fact that God has sent His Son into the world to die on their behalf, or they have at least rejected that as a truth. This is why the Scriptures consistently compare the wicked who are to those who lack knowledge, and on the contrary to those who are children of God, is those that progressively have an understanding of God, who know who God is and what God is doing and how God works and the character of God, and the person of God, and that they can experience the blessing and power and benefit as believers, because they know God. And when you know God, it makes it easy to believe in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. But I want you to know this knowledge of God does not come from our own ability. It does not come from the idea of digging deep, pressing in. It does not come because they have gone to some seminary or Bible college that they got their doctorate of ministry under Dr. John MacArthur. Now, knowledge of God comes because Christ says in verse 26, I have made your name known to them. The knowledge of God does not come from within. It comes from Christ having made it known to them. Not only did He make the name of God known to those who would believe among the disciples, but it will also be futuristically making them known as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Making Him known as a triune God to a lost world. Because to those that the Father has given, and thus He says, not only have I made your name known to them, but at the end of this verse He says, and will make it known. That's why we have a mission statement to what? Know Christ and to make Christ known. That is His desire for Himself and His desire for us. Jesus' work of revealing the Father, listen, will continue. He will certainly continue to make known the Father, presumably through you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who now indwells us as believers. It was D.A. Carson said that so the great God's gracious self-disclosure in His Son would not be reduced to a mere record of history but would be a lived experience. It it will be something that will be ongoing in the life of the believer. He, He will continue to make known the Father. He will, through His Word, in the life of the believer, make Himself known to us daily. It's why we daily dive into the Word of God because we want to seek Him and He promises when you seek Me with all of your heart, I will disclose Myself to you. He will reveal to you the name and the character of God. He did and He will continue. But how if He isn't here? How if He isn't there? Through His Spirit and through His Word. And there is a reason the text says, ultimately so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. Listen, the mark of a true child of God, 
the one who knows God, the one who has been revealed the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of the Gospel, who has the knowledge of God, who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, will purpose themselves to live a life of love. Love. Not love in a modern day, postmodern, created, fabricated idea of love. No, a biblical love defined by Scripture, by patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and every other element of love that we find. The love which God had loved Christ might resonate, might be shining like a light through you so that the world might see that you are truly disciples of Christ. That they might be won into salvation. Not by your deeds, but they might have ears to hear because of your love for them. Through the proclamation of His Word and the preeminence of love and mercy and grace in you and through you. So my prayer for you is that you see this prayer as it draws our attention to oneness. It fixes our eyes upon union with Christ and the triune God. And the fact that we're all in connection with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, resulting in being good and great witnesses for Christ, not only in word, but in deed as well. Living in observable unity among the body of Christ. In a world that will see our love for the Lord because He lives in us. And through us, we will exemplify our love because He has first loved us. My prayer for you is that you will believe, that you will be saved, and that you will benefit from this high priestly prayer for which God thinks of you as a wonderful child who He looks forward to being reunited with you in heaven with Him. Let's pray. This has been Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. And be sure to visit us online at familybiblefellowship.org. And come see us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m.